We've been talking about uh, I Doubt. And the series we've been dealing with, with people who are skeptics. People out there who are skeptics about God and Christianity and all that we stand for. And the big idea of the series has been, Jesus wasn't at all offended by doubters, and neither should we. We're talking about how we can be on mission helping doubters and skeptics reconnect to God. In week one, we talked about there can't be just one true religion, can there? Some people out there believe that there are many ways to God, many ways to heaven after you die. And we know that Jesus is the one who laid it all down so we could, we could go there. Week two, how could a good God allow so much suffering? Week three, we talked about Christianity is a straitjacket. People feel that Christianity is just so confining and, and binds us and doesn't allow us to be free and who we are. That would have came out better if my voice was better. Two weeks ago, we talked about the church is responsible for so much injustice. The crusades and wars, things of that nature. Today, we want to dig into a topic that, that I've heard a lot of people ask about, or a lot of people say, how can a loving God send people to hell? How is it possible that if God is so loving and, and, and so wonderful and, you know, the, the picture with the lamb around his neck and everything, how could he possibly send people to hell for eternity? Doesn't he care? Maybe he needs to just give them a second opportunity once they see what it's really like. I want to start off with a story that I found today and... Um, I thought it was pretty good, so, so I wanted to share it with you guys. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Quickly, God was faced with a class action lawsuit for failure to file an environmental impact statement. God was granted a temporary permit, of course, for the project, but was stymied with the cease and desist order for the earthly part. Then God said this, let there be light. Immediately, the officials demanded to know how the light would be made. Would there be strip mining? What about thermal pollution? God explained that the light would come from a large ball of fire. God was granted permission. There, I'll leave that word out. I couldn't pronounce it. Permission to make light, assuming that no smoke would result from the ball of fire. And that he would obtain a building permit and to conserve energy. He would need to have the light out half of the time. God agreed and offered to call the light day in the darkness night. The officials replied that they were not interested in the semantics. Just make it happen. God then said this. Let the earth put forth vegetation. Plant yielding seeds and fruit trees bearing fruit. The EPA agreed, of course, so long that only native seed was used. Then God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth. The officials pointed out that this would require approval from the Department of Game coordinated with the Heavenly Wildlife Federation and the Audubon Society. 
Everything was okay and going great until God said that the project would be completed in six days. Whoa, 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 the official said. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take at least 200 days to review the applications and the impact statement. After that, there'd be a public hearing, and then there'd be 10 or 12 months before, and it went on and on and on and on. God looked at it, shook his head, and it was at this moment he decided to create hell. (laughs) The views of this story do not necessarily reflect the views of this church. Here's what the skeptics say about Christianity's belief in hell. Maybe you've heard some of them. Love and judgment are incompatible. Look what the Dalai Lama said. Love is the absence of judgment. Assuming that some people are going to hell means you think that they have no dignity or worth. The doctrine of hell is just offensive. I should be able to do whatever I want and not be judged. What? Let's talk about the logic of love and judgment for a little bit here. And I want to start with this. If you're taking notes, love with no judgment isn't logical. Love with no judgment isn't logical. And I would say it's actually very self-centered, right? I mean, come on, God. I should be able to go out there and do what I want, and, and if it feels good, I should be able to do it, and there shouldn't be any repercussions on me, right? Because you're a loving God after all. How could there be any judgment on me? Right? I mean, I mean... It's how I see you and view you anyway, so how can there be any judgment? Our culture is so preoccupied with bending the nature, the natural order to serve our desires. And when we were thinking about this, we were looking at the chemicals that we throw on the fields. You know, we don't have enough food or it's not big enough or or we need more of it because we're not eating enough, of course. So let's throw chemicals on it and and, and create more and solve our problems. Giving people cancer. Let's inject steroids into our animals and make them grow faster and bigger so that we can have more meat. How about this one? How about the steroids for athletes? As an athlete, I need to recover quicker. So I'm going to inject myself with steroids. I need to do it bigger and better than the next guy, so I need to inject myself with steroids. We're naturally trying to take away the consequences of our actions. There's other religions who are more comfortable with God's judgments than they are with His love. You get into some of the countries in the Middle East and and whatnot, Islam doesn't believe in a personal God. Muslims are offended by Christianity's emphasis on forgiveness. 
Wow. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Buddhists, they don't even believe there is a God at all. Most religions, especially Christianity, see justice as being God's responsibility. If God doesn't make everything right in the end, my question is, who will? So what are we saying? Love with no judgment isn't logical. But, and I throw a big but out there. Love that leads to judgment actually is logical. Thank you. If you have your Bibles, could you turn to Psalm 145? We're going to read 17 through 20. Love that leads to judgment is actually logical. Verse 17. And this is a great description of God's love. The Lord is righteous in everything he does. He's filled with kindness. The Lord is close to all who call on him. Yes, to all who call on him in truth. He grants the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cries for help and he rescues them. Now the language is going to shift here just a little bit as we go into verse 20. The Lord protects all those who love him, but he destroys the wicked. I love that. The Lord protects all of those who love him, but he destroys the wicked. I remember years ago when my daughters were teenagers, and um, I was, you know, probably like most fathers, very protective of your daughters, right? And so uh, uh, I had a rule that um, these boys that wanted to date our daughters had to call me before they could date. And they had to get permission from me before they could date my daughter. You know, and I'm, I'm like any, any dad, you know, when they come in the house, of course, I'm cleaning my guns, right, hon? You know, I got the guns laid out and I'm cleaning those guys and, and uh, you know, giving them a, some conversation across the table. But there was this one young man who wanted to date my oldest daughter. And he called me on the phone because I don't think he was brave enough to come talk to me in person. And he called me and he said, Mr. Monforton, I would like to get permission from you to date your daughter. And his voice was trembling a little bit. And I, I don't know why he was nervous, but it was trembling a little bit. And so I started talking to him and I said, you want to date my daughter, huh? Well, there's some rules that you're going to need to follow if this is going to take place. You need to have her home on time. Uh, matter of fact, I don't even want you touching her. Matter of fact, I don't even think you should be looking at her. And when you go to the place that you're going for the date, I think you need to ride in separate vehicles. And when you get there, hang out with separate people. <laughs> so I said to the young man, I said, I said, uh, you understand the rules? And he Yes, Mr. Monfort, and I understand the rules. I said, good, because 
I want to make sure you follow him because I, I don't want to have to hurt you. And he says on the phone in a shaking voice, he says, he says, I understand, Mr. Monfort, and I don't want you to hurt me. <clears throat> I was very protective of, my, of our daughters. Hurt my daughter and there's going to be a little trouble. There was a time when my, one of my daughters was out somewhere and a young man did something very bad to her. He hurt her real bad. And I can only imagine by what he did that the pain and the hurt that she was enduring mentally must have been excruciating. And I don't want to get into details of what he did because there's kids in the room. And, and I want to be respectful of my daughter anyway. Needless to say, he hurt her real bad. And I remember when I found out, the first thing that I wanted to do was kill this boy. You know, it's the first thought that comes into your head. And it wasn't just, I want to kill this boy. How am I going to kill this boy? Because I wanted it to be painful. I felt justified that because he had hurt my daughter like he did and had hurt our family like he did, that it was my job to bring swift justice into his life. I think it's a good thing that I didn't know this young man's name and I didn't know where he lived. Because it allowed God some time to start working on me. And after a time, I felt like God kept saying I needed to pray for this young man. And as I began to do that, I started to feel pity towards him. And, and I know that may sound weird to you, but I just started feeling pity towards him because, you know, when you look at somebody like that through God's eyes, you see pain and hurt on that side too, obviously, or he wouldn't be doing what he's doing. And as I began to pray and seek God, I felt like God was telling me that justice was his. I needed to let it go because vengeance is the Lord's, not mine. God's the one who would deal the justice that needed to be dealt. And, and by the time we got to that point, you know, I'm praying for this young man. I was praying that he would get saved and that ultimately he wouldn't have to be dealt the judgment that he was due because of what Jesus did. Ultimately, I want to see this young man come to faith in Christ Jesus. I want to see this young man one day in heaven and I want to shake his hand because he made the right choice by accepting Jesus. 
That's a hard thing for me to say. But I mean it. I remember talking to my daughter sometime later. And I was sharing with her God's forgiveness and she needed to let it go. And, and, and I was sharing with her that, that this is God's battle, not hers. And she didn't like me saying that. And I found out that she was angry with me because, because I didn't bring justice to this young man's life. And she said that I didn't understand because I couldn't understand what she went through. And I told her, I said, you know, honey, I said, not only do I understand it, but your mama understands it too because we went through it years ago too, the same thing. I said, I do understand. I said, and you need to understand that justice is the Lord's. And the sooner you give it up to God and the sooner you tell God, I'm handing this to you, you handle it, you take care of it, is the sooner that weight is going to be lifted off of your shoulders and that hurt and that pain is going to start to dissipate a little bit. Because it's God's job to bring justice, not ours. I remember it being a very painful time for our family. But I also look back and I think, my gosh, look what God's done in my life. Because years ago, I would have killed him. Nobody would have known it. But for God to grab a hold of me and say, you need to give the vengeance over to me, is a huge thing. A powerful thing. According to the psalm that we just read, God's love actually results in his judgment. God is a God of love. But sometimes through that love, judgment comes. The big idea of what we're talking about today is this. Isn't it logical to believe that the God of love can't also be a God of judgment? I mean, let's be real. Why would I even want to serve a God who just allows everything and allows chaos and doesn't bring order into things? Why would I want to serve a God that doesn't make things right in the end and lets things keep going? It makes no sense to me. Saying all that, And thinking about this young man and where he possibly could end up, I want to talk about that. I want to take some time and I want to talk about hell and what hell really is. And to do that, I want to look at society's view of hell and and look at some cartoons. Now, I want to point out that this one was brought up by Pastor Russ. I love you, Pastor. Nerds in hell, not enough for you. Or not hot enough for you, sorry. Hot enough for you. Let me try that again. Sorry, it's Pastor Russell's. 
Hot enough for you? There we go. Is that funny the third time? All right. <laughs> Let's look at the next one. Hell's Library. Now, I thought this one was funny. This was Russ's too, but I thought it was funny. Satan's standing there. He's in hell, and he's, he's, he's waiting to get a book. And, and one of the books says, a book of story problems. And another one says, story problems galore. And then another one says, even more story problems. And one just says, story problems. And the final one's this. And, and I have some criticism towards this one. Because, not because I like accordions. But I'm of the viewpoint that the, that the harps and the accordions should be handed out in hell. And that electric guitars should be handed out in heaven. Come on, somebody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Big amps. Some drums, come on. <laughs> Welcome to heaven, here's your harp. Welcome to hell, here's your accordion. Or pipe organ. I could go on. Tambourines. Uh-oh, uh-oh, did I strike a chord? Woo! Alright, there's nothing wrong with tambourines. Wow. Well, we'll find out when we get to heaven if there's any there. <laughs> okay, so this is kind of how society views, views hell. You know, it's kind of a comic thing. It's kind of a funny thing, right? They don't take it very serious, but here's the deal. Hell isn't what you think. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this out of the New Living. And this story, in this story, it's a parable, okay? So it may be true, it may not be true. It's a parable that Jesus told, and it's a great illustration of what hell really looks like. And so we're going to break this down and, and, and look at this. So starting in, chapter, in verse 19 of chapter 16 in the book of Luke, of the Holy Bible, Verse 19, Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen, who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. Now it's interesting that the only person named in this story is Lazarus. The rich man, he's just known as the rich man. And 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 I think it just symbolizes his whole identity, right? It's just attached to wealth. He's just, he's just the rich man. And it, it illustrates that people in hell have lost their identity. And sin has become their identity. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that having money is sinful, okay? The Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It's the love of it. It's when you put your wealth and your money above God that we have a problem. There's nothing wrong with having a lot of money. So I just wanted to be clear. Verse 21. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. There in torment he, torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, 
have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. So the rich man's in hell, right? And all he can think about is his discomfort and himself. Hey, send that poor guy over here to take care of me. And if you're taking notes, it's this. People in hell are still preoccupied with themselves. It's all about me. Verse 25. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. The rich man is clearly in denial about his spiritual reality. He thinks he can manipulate himself out of the system. There's got to be a way out, and he's going to find it. People in hell are in denial about their spiritual reality. Verse 27. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said this, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone is raised from the dead. It's interesting here, and I I think this is the most interesting part of all of it. The rich man is trying to shift the blame. He's saying, God, if someone, this is what he's really saying, He's saying, if someone, if you would have raised someone from the dead and sent them to me, I would have believed God, but because of your failure to do so, I didn't do it. So could you do it for my brothers? And I don't believe he was saying that because he was concerned about his brothers. I think he was saying that because he was saying it wasn't my fault. God, you failed. You failed to tell me. And if you're taking notes, people in hell are still trying to shift the blame. And this is the crazy thing about it. He's in hell and talking to Abraham. Never once did he ask to be rescued. He just asked to be pampered. He asked to be taken care of. Never once did he ask to be rescued. Let's watch this video. I know you're like, I don't get the frog thing. <laughs> or maybe some of you are. But really, it's, it's, it's a cool illustration. You know, the frog is in his environment. And because the environment is slowly changing, he doesn't realize it. 
He doesn't realize what's going on. And isn't that like us, like, like it with us? You know, you've got Hollywood down there, and, and they're doing, you know, these movies with all of this junk in it that, that 15 years ago or 20 years ago we'd be appalled at. You know, and they come out with this big shock value, right? And then everybody's offended and then they back it off and say they're sorry and then they slowly start interjecting this stuff in and it gets more and more and more and then pretty soon we're so immersed in it we don't even realize it. Lazarus was like that in hell. His surroundings didn't seem to affect him a whole lot. He was just focused on himself. I want to get this, and I, I want to read this, because I, I, I love this, this sentence, so I want, I want to say it right. Hell is simply a person's freely chosen identity apart from God. I want to read that again. Hell is simply a person's freely chosen identity apart from God. And when you have that separation from God and you have your own identity and it's not God's, you're on a trajectory a tra- trajectory into affinity, into God's judgment, into hell. That's amazing. I choose to serve God or I choose not to serve God. Romans 1.24 in the NIV says, Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their, flesh, of their hearts. Flesh. If you're taking notes, hell is not so much about the fire and brimstone as it is about being eternally separated from God. Don't misunderstand me. Hell is a place. Okay? Hell is a place. But what makes hell hell isn't the place, but the absence of God. That's what makes hell, hell. Can you imagine all of the hurt and the pain and all of the the horrible things that take place on this earth? Amplified a thousand times over. That's what it's like to have the absence of God. Because the stuff that happens on this earth, God's presence is still here on this earth. Think if God's presence was gone, how much worse it would be. And there's no relief. The reality of hell is, without God's goodness, without God's love, without God's morals, it's a horrible place. It's a horrible place. I think in looking at at a lot of this, we've demonstrated clearly that the Bible describes a God who is both loving, but also judges us. A God who's very jealous, and I, I would even take that a step further. A God who is all loving, but punishes no one for injustice would be a pretty wimpy God. Amen? I mean, come on. A God who, who la- allows chaos to reign. Why would you want to serve a God like that? I want to serve a God of order, not a God of chaos. 
I want to serve a God who has my back, not someone who's just going to let things run over me. I want to serve a God who's there with me and has a plan for my life, not just a whatever God, do your own thing. I want to serve a God who loves me and cares for every little detail in my life. Not one that I make up in my own mind and make him to be what I want him to be just because I don't like the concept of hell or judgment. So what are the next steps? The first next step is this. Let's let God be the judge. Let's let God be the judge. I don't know who's going to heaven, and I don't know who's going to hell. I mean, I know my personal state, right? Let's let God judge that out. I have a feeling that when we get to heaven, we're probably going to see some people there we didn't expect and not see some people that we did expect. But I'm grateful that I'm not the one that has to make that decision because I'd probably cave and let everybody in. Number two, be a lover. Jesus said people would know we were his disciples by how we love other people. I have a feeling a lot of people kind of already know their state. They don't need us judging them and telling them how bad they are. They need us to love them and share God's word and the love of Christ in their lives. Amen? Living on this earth is judgment enough. (laughs) Can I get the band? Come on up, guys. Number three is this. We need to be a people that live soberly. I'm one who believes that the time is drawn near. I believe that Jesus is coming back real soon. Not to mention, I think back and, and I think of my grandpa who instantly died of a heart attack. There one day, gone the next. I don't know when your number's up. I don't know when mine's up. But I do know this. I choose to serve God and I choose to love God and live that life. And it doesn't matter when it happens. I'm good to go. And I know God wants that for your life too. Amen? Can I get everybody to stand up? People who pray, can I get you over on the sides, please? The Bible says we're to pray for people and lay hands on people and and great things happen. If I could get everybody to bow your head right now, maybe you're one of those people that Hell hasn't been a reality for you until now. And now you understand that hell is really the separation from God. Maybe you've realized that today you've been separated from God and and God is calling you back today. God's saying that He loves you and He wants to have a relationship with you. If you're in this place 
and you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or maybe you walked away from God and you're saying, God, it's time for me to come back. Would you, would you look at me and raise your hand, wave at me, whatever it may be? Today's the day of salvation, the Bible says. God loves you and He wants to, wants to be your friend. Anybody in this place? If you're in this place and you say, Bruce, there's been some stuff that's happened to me and I need to give it over to God. I need to let God be the judge. I need that weight lifted off of my shoulders. You can, you can look up at me now. I need that weight lifted off of my shoulders. There's some people here on the sides that want to pray with you and believe with you and, and share with you and love with you and love on you. Maybe you have some other needs. That's cool too. It's time to let it go. Let God be the judge over those things that have happened to you. Let God deal with the people who have hurt you. Or maybe you maybe you haven't forgiven God yet. It's time to let it go. And freedom will happen in your life and that weight will lift off of your shoulders.